Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Green Left Weekly, another edition of it. Yeah, and we have. Um, I'm on the line with Lali, me, Jacob, um, <laughs> and um, me, Lalita. <laughs> and so, far, unfortunately, we we only have what was your name again? Andy. Andy, um, with us as our sort of third person. Um, So keep going. Yep, and um, but we have a good um, program um, lined, lining up to this um, today. Um, we've got at least actually we've got quite a number of at least four guests, <laughs> um, but we had to pack it in because um, there's quite an important kind of occupation happening right now in the Sydney College of the Arts, and we thought we would have to, we have to get that um, on the air. Um, so, um, but um, I guess if we can sort of talk about, you know, some um, upcoming news. Um, Lali, do you have sort of any news? Well, the number of things happening. Um, one of the uh, key things, I guess, is the um, the firefighters rally um, over toxic, toxic chemicals that happened um, recently. Uh, the there's a lot of kerfuffle around the firefighters, EBA, as you know. Yep. And um, what's happened is um, the Liberal Party has chucked its um, weight around it. And it's, it's been politicized to an extent um, where it's, it's getting very, very muddy and it's actually affecting the working conditions of, of uh, firefighters. Now, on the 16th, they had a rally. And the, the content of it, I don't think, was very, made very clear on the mainstream media. So what happened there was the, um, the, the, the fire, CFA were victims of toxic contamination at the country fire, fire authority, former Fiskville training facility. And, of course, no one talks about it. Um, Fiskville was closed down last year, but a state parliamentary inquiry found that the CFA management had known about the contamination since 2010 and allowed training to, to continue here um, in, in Fiskville. So the chemicals have been linked to a rise in the number of um, incidences of cancer and other diseases among firefighters who train there. So the United Firefighters Union wants comprehensive testing and compensation for those affected. So according to the UFU, the um, United Firefighters Union, the, the bulletin says that many members who were exposed have not been informed by the CFA that blood testing is available. And when they were tested, some firefighters have faced long delays in receiving results. So the union has called um, for the response for those responsible for the disaster to be held accountable. So, so there's a lot of mudding of the waters because what's happened is the volunteer fire brigades Victoria, an organisation claiming to represent the volunteer firefighters, has won a court injunction preventing the proposed enterprise agreement for the firefighters employed by the CFA. 
Um, so the, this organization, along with the Liberal Party and the media, has campaigned against the enterprise agreement, claiming it would adversely affect firefighters and the, the volunteers, of course. And uh, the volunteers, however, disagree with it. So the age has generally been hostile to the United Firefighters Union and the proposed enterprise agreement. But the, on the 18th of August, they admitted that many volunteers have contacted the age to attack the association, saying that the organization did not speak for all CFA mm. volunteers. So it's, it's a lot of um, fiddling around. And who's representing who, it's very unclear because of the way the, the Liberal Party has put its nose into the whole affair. And it's going on, and the ABCC is being discussed at the moment. It seems it's a priority for the federal government. Uh, to, to write up the ABCC, and they're also inserting this firefighter stuff issue into that ABCC mm-hmm. thing, changing legislation appro- accordingly. Yep. Well, they'll get it through. It's another factor because of the way the, the seats have lined up post-election, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But they're not looking good, and all, all those um, volunteers who were affected by the chemicals are out there not knowing what the hell's going on because information has not been given to them yep. appropriately. Well, it's because um, I would argue that, you know, the, um, the Liberal Party and sort of the, the media has sort of... What? Yeah, so the Liberal Party has muddied the waters. Yep. Um, so it's, it's really weird that... Um, not weird, I guess. They used it as an election platform before. Um, and uh, that, I think, has meant that the real picture cannot be brought forward, and only the, the, the volunteers themselves can tell the story. Yep. And they've not been allowed to do that, um, except in this particular case where they actually contact the age and, and, and you know, mm. registered their protest about the misrepresentation of um, the, the whole yep. dispute, really. Yeah, I guess um, now um, I think it would be a good time, actually, to talk about, um, in, co- in light of the rally this happening that's going to be happening this Saturday, the, where the kind of what's happening in terms of the refugee rights um, movement. Um, there's, been, there's an article in the cover of the Green Left Weekly, um, which is the front um, cover, which, you know, basically by Zebedee Parks that basically um, argues that, you know, we need to bring them here, let them stay, um, in, term, um, in terms of the refugees that are, uh, have been threatened with deportation um, back to Nauru, but we're also arguing that, you know, the refugees who are currently imprisoned on Nauru, Christmas Island, Manus Island, um, that we should um, bring them here. But yeah. I guess um, most, some other interesting kind of sort of things have sort of popped up, especially in... Um, the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, there was an article, sort of um, released um, by, sort of written by a bu- um, some intellectuals, like um, some known intellectuals like Robert Mann, um, who are actually sort of arguing a position um, that yes, we should bring the refugees here, um, but um, we need to, act, um, but the refugee movement needs to moderate its position, and we actually need to accept um, the argument that we should be turning back boats to prevent deaths at sea, which um, it's arguing that essentially the, um, the, refu- the only way we can um, make progress in the refugee is if we compromise with the politicians, um, because one of the justifications um, that has been put up for um, the mandatory ten- detention regime is that we, ha- um, we, have, we turn back any sort of boats back to where they came from to save lives deep because, you know, 
people smugglers are taking in refugees and so this argues sort of arguing for a compromise oh yes we stop imprisoning refugees but we still do implement boat turnbacks and as um the refugee a lot of refugee rights activists have been very critical of this position saying that you know there should be no compromise um, in the refugee movement and, you know, that we should be um, against boat turnbacks but, and we should also be against um, mandatory detention and, um, and, and we shouldn't buy into sort of the rhetoric of the, of the kind of major parties around... Well, it sort of raises... Like, the problem is it raises fundamental questions um, for anyone who's got half a brain, really. I mean, they talk about um, discouraging um, the... the uh, what do you call them, the guys who, who do the, the, the actual um, smuggling, um, they, don't, they haven't produced any numbers. How many boat smugglers have, uh, have, smugglers have they, they've stopped? Do they have the numbers? Do they know? Mm. We haven't seen any um, feedback about the number of um, smugglers they've actually stopped. They, they claim that their boats have been mm. stopped, but... There are lots of reports of boats coming and going and being towed away rather than actually being stopped. So what happens instead is they suffer in, in, in refugee camps in Malaysia or other countries. Um, and that is not a solution for refugees. I mean, in Malaysia, I know it's terribly overcrowded um, and it's awful conditions for them to stay there. I think about 80,000 or so in, in refugee camps there. Now, the other question is refugees who are in, in, in Nauru and Manus. You know, their mental health has been blown. They don't die at sea, but they're slow. There's a very slow, torturous life they're living in those camps. Mm. Children are being raped, according to some reports. You know, and they're being intimidated. They're being ter- terrorized by guards and so on. And, and we had that in Q&A on Monday, one of the uh, women who worked there, um, you know, at risking two-year jail, actually um, said on, on publicly on Q&A uh, the, uh, about the horrible conditions in, in Manus and Nauru. Mm. So this is no excuse. The, the, the excuses they're, they're offering is totally uh, gone parts is used by it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And um, <coughs> Zebedee Parks horrible. actually has a response to sort of this argument in his cover story article for the Green Left Weekly this week um, that, um, you know, brought the idea that we should buy into this argument of boat turnbacks um, simply, you know, means we're um, accepting that people we should be sending people to die elsewhere. Yeah. And, of course, also it removed the main issue is that it removes any obligation and quote here, Australia has to accept asylum seekers, many of whom um, are fleeing situations. Australia has played a role in creating, whether through supporting overseas wars or repressive regimes or contributing to climate change. And, of course, it's like the, the, the heart of kind of this debate, um, he, he argues, is that, you know, the heart of, it's whether refu- a wealthy first world country like Australia will, in the face of a growing worldwide refugee crisis, welcome refugees or erect fortresses and at this point it seems like where Australia is buying into sort of the latter argument of erecting fortresses and barriers to prevent refugees from coming here. That's right and it's, it's just draconian measures, even Amnesty International has labelled as a draconian the human rights record of Australia especially towards refugees and the fact is all this nonsense about um, regional settlement, New Zealand offered to settle some of the refugees and the Australian government refused. What's that about? I mean, mm. Robert Mann uh, um, is completely out of place, and Tim Castello's uh, line is, uh, or their suggestions are completely wasted because 
Australia is not going to allow any of these refugees to be settled in any other country around this area. Mm. So how does the argument in any way is valid is, is my question. You know, the, 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 the whole thing is totally um, insane, the way they're approaching it. It lacks basic humanity, and, and Australia is in breach of so many of the human rights um, laws around uh, United Nations, you name it, it's all there. I think people know that very well. And, and hopefully people will turn up to the refugee rally on Saturday, it's tomorrow at 1 o'clock mm. at um, the State Library. We're hoping that people can mobilize uh, en masse and send a very strong message yeah. to these people. And these, um, these rallies are going to be um, nationwide, so I, it's going to be um, um, part of a much bigger kind of sort of movement. And, of course, I've even um, actually seen there's actually some protests organized in Tokyo, actually, at the Australian Embassy on right. the, around the same time that these protests are happening, mm-hmm. and London as well. Okay, if you want to play a station ID, then we can take the call. Okay, back online. And we have Brad Koth online. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for talking to us at this uh, very early <laughs> part of the morning. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> now, just to introduce you, you're one of the people who's helping uh, Jasmine Pilborough, who has been charged um, for standing up in a Qantas flight last year, about 18 months That's ago, right. um, mm-hmm. to stop yeah. the forced deportation of Tamil refugees. Um, back to Sri Lanka, yes? That's right, yes. Okay, um, now what's happening next week, and, and you're one of the people who are helping her with the court cases coming up next week, yeah? What, what are the charges um, against uh, poor Jasmine? So uh, the charge, uh, I think, is, is around interfering with a cabin crew. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, what she's been charged with. Um, so that'll be, that'll be heard next Friday. Yeah, she just stood up, didn't she? She didn't actually interfere with the cabin crew. Just stood up, That's and that exactly meant... right. Yeah. yeah. So, and so this this, this uh, you know is a protest of a of uh, you know a very non-violent nature. Yeah. Um, what she did was she stood up on a plane. Um, the, the plane was uh, you know boarded, and um, there was a, a Tamil asylum seeker um, who was. Had been escorted onto the plane by, uh, you know, uh, border force uh, people, I believe. Yep. And uh, uh, so Jazz uh, was able to to board the plane, and she just stood up in her seat, um, uh, not uh, you know shouting or abusive or anything like that, but she she stood up and, and just simply uh, refused to be seated until the uh, the asylum seeker could be taken off. The plane. Mm. And two other people stood up in solidarity, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So they, um, look, it, it, um, uh, they uh, saw what was happening and, and um, themselves uh, felt that they were in a moral dilemma that they needed to um, sort of uh, stand up in, in solidarity, like you say, and, uh, and take part in, in what Jazz was doing. Mm. So, what actually prompted Jazz to take such radical action? Yeah, look, I think I guess there's two um, uh, sort of themes, uh, important themes that prompted her. Um, uh, she what she uh, uh, this wasn't someone who was um, who, who she'd uh, had a sort of a, a long relationship with or anything like that, a friendship. Uh, with, but the the things 
that we know about um, Sri Lanka and Australia's um, removal of, of asylum seekers uh, to places like Sri Lanka, I guess, uh, what prompted her to do that. Um, so we know that, you know, there's still reports of, of um, Tamils being uh, mistreated, um, even tortured uh, in Sri Lanka. And it seems to be particularly uh, those who are returning from overseas. Mm. Um, so that's certainly one of the, the uh, you know, the big things that prompted uh, jazz. And I guess the other thing is just the weakening of Australia's um, assessment of, of people seeking asylum, um, you know, to the point where it's, it's uh, you know, such an undermined process that it's very difficult to have, um, you know, to know if, if people are being assessed, uh, you know, properly so that when they're, when they're removed from Australia, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to to tell if they are in fact being, um, you know, returned to a place where they will be safe. Hmm. From what I understand, if um, the uh, the refugees are returned to Sri Lanka, they are then yes. banned from leaving Sri Lanka for five years because they are charged with having left um, Sri Lanka illegally by boat. And um, okay. a number of refugees who have gone back are actually fathers of children in, in Australia and their husbands mm. to um, sure. Australian citizens. Uh, and therefore, the children don't see the, the father for five years and the woman has to, you know, uh, parent by herself um, and, the sure. children, and the whole family misses the, the father. And also, um, there, there are no Australians on the ground in, in, in Sri Lanka monitoring uh, what happens to these refugees once they get there. Um, these are the stories I've heard. Um, one particular story that I heard was when, uh, well, I read about it in The Guardian, actually, where uh, a Sri Lankan refugee from England who, he's not a refugee, he settled in, in Sri Lanka, but he went back yes, to visit right. and he was tortured. Yes. So yes. It, and it, Yeah, if uh, we're thinking about the same one, that was only in June this year. Yes. So it's, it's, it's not something that, uh, you know, was happening just after the war and, you know, now there's a change of government and everything's fine. Um, this, this sort of thing is still ongoing. Yes. And um, what do you think um, Jasmine's charters are in court tomorrow, I mean, next week? Next week? Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't profess to be a, a lawyer or, or uh, someone with a legal background. Um, I, I, look, I mean, I certainly would hope that um, what happens in court uh, is, you know, is common sense. You know, we, you and I can, um, you know, know very well that uh, Jazz is not the sort of person that, uh, that should be, um, you know, adorning our jails. <laughs> um, very nicely put there. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, look, I've known Jazz for some time, and and uh, and she's a wonderful person who who uh, you know with a lot of decency and and standing up for those who are most vulnerable. Um, so I think um, certainly we would we would hope that uh, you know Jazz gets a good outcome, but we also want to shine a light to say that um, uh, you know what what is happening. 
and the reasons that Jazz did what she did um, was that something's wrong. Yes. Um, with with uh, you know our current uh, treatment of asylum seekers, mm. of uh, those seeking asylum, and and um, uh, you know for her to take an action like this. Yes. You know, must show that uh, yeah, all's uh, not as it should be. We're not doing the right thing in Australia. Yeah, so um, just um, lastly, uh, there is um, a visual being held in front of the courts next Friday, I believe. You want to give us some details right. about that, Brad? Yeah, so, so that uh, will be happening uh, at the time uh, of the trial. Now, offhand, I, I, I can't... Uh, uh, tell you the exact times of that. It's at 8.15. It's 8.15 in the morning. Excellent. Yeah. I'm glad you can. <laughs> <laughs> I did my research. So we'll, yeah, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so we will be um, maintaining a presence out there and, and sending a clear message that um, we, we don't uh, want to see Tamil people returned to Sri Lanka. In fact, we're, we stand with those who are calling for a moratorium on um, the removal of, of Tamil people um, who are seeking asylum here um, uh, and sending them back to Sri Lanka. So we want to send that message. Mm, and um, we also want people, sure, and we also want people there to show support for Jasmine too. She's taking yes, a huge risk. Right. Yeah, she stands yes. to go to jail for two years, I believe, if the charge stands. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not a yeah. nice prospect for anyone. Absolutely not, and particularly not, uh, you know, someone at the, the, uh, you know, in, in the prime of her life. With, yes, uh, a young uh, student. Her. Yeah. yeah, very yeah, brave right. woman. Hats off to her, and it's good to have people like mm. that in the community who can lead the charge against the draconian policies of this government against um, refugees. Um, so hopefully, people will, will gather in, in large numbers to support Jasmine, um, mm. and. Thank you so much to, for being available, Brad. It's so early in the morning, but um, <laughs> thanks a lot. Yes, thank you you're much. most welcome. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Okay. So we're back on Green Left um, Radio with Jacob and La Lita. <laughs> Lalita, Lalita. Okay, you want to talk about the bikini band, Jacob? Yes, that, that's been um, very. <laughs> I actually um, saw on social media recently um, in the news, um, though it's not completely covered in the Green Left Weekly, though there's a good article about it that we'll talk about it shortly. Um, but basically, um, in for the first time listener, listeners possibly don't know. Um, in France, in sort of the name of pushing secularism and um, and you know against fundamental Muslim fundamentalism. No, no, they also have this policy apparently in France where they separate religion from state completely. Yep. Um, and they're very, or they claim that they're very strict about not allowing any religious representations in public arena. Yep. Um, and probably in Parliament, I guess. But, you know, I don't know how they say that when they've got churches everywhere and mosques and Hindu temples and all sorts of religious iconic buildings around the place. Anyway. Yep, so basically what they've done, they've done everything that Hanson, Pauling Hanson wants to do. And they've, <laughs> yes. And they've banned the burqa. Um, they essentially have made it illegal to wear the burqa in a public place. And there's been, like, reports of, like, you know, women who wear bur- um, burkini 
Yeah, well, it's actually not the burka; it's the burkini, which is burkini, yeah, which is like um uh for pe- it's for Muslims who want to wear the, uh, a burka, but in a sort of beach setting. So well, it's a bit have, like the you know the lifesavers, you know those yeah. uh, those those um fellows who save lives on the beach. Yeah, they have the hat and the full full garb on. Mm. It's it's similar to that, yeah. really. So there have been reports that you know women who are wearing the bikini, Muslim women who are wearing bikini, have been hassled by police for wearing it. Which yeah, they've is, been asked to strip actually, and which is completely, absolutely, utterly re- reprehensible, and yes. it's like a complete violation of you know, any sort of civil liberties. And exactly. the fact that they um, that is argued on this sort of pretense of, you know, fighting fundamentalism and, um, you know, promoting secularism, but it's right, right, really, they're just being just as repressive as um, the Islamic fundamentalists that they're supposedly um, trying to stop. It's um, so, and of course, in um, Sarah Halfway's article on um, the latest Green Left Weekly, she essentially argues that you know um, this is this is just for, um, racist and misogynist on um, level. Misogynist, yeah. Um, you know, dictating law what women can and cannot wear, or how they can and cannot express their religious beliefs is you know state-sponsored sexism. This is what Sarah argues, and of course, it is yet another example of women bearing the brunt of racist dog whistle politics. And of course, you know, um, she also mentions the same de- um, debate has actually occurred here in Australia in light of you know. Poppy, um, um, but um, though thankfully we can um, say that no ban has. Um, yeah, even though that um, Jackie Lambie um, started the charge against the ban, the the burqa in 2014, you know it hasn't taken off. Thank goodness. I think um, also in um, France, I think this is not. Um, the, there's been this um, sort of argument that also was put forward by Jackie Lambie that um, wearing. We're not talking about the bikini now. We're talking about the burqa. Um, the burqa represents a security threat because, you know, it's covering the face and um, so on. Um, and I think there's been, I think France had, in the past, has actually tried to implement sort of laws that would prevent people from wearing it on an airplane. They still do, they arrest them. Yeah, and they still do it. Yeah. Um, and so this is, the bikini is actually just the next, is actually another, the next thing. The ban of the bikini is like the next thing or forward, like, you know, go, following on from the ban on the burqa and, like, you know, public places, you know, wearing it, going past security checkpoints and so on. And um, Sarah um, then brings up that, you know, if if governments, you know, were surely sort of interested in, you know, preventing terrorism and violence, um, they could actually start by, you know, investing in millions in a campaign to wear, raise awareness around racism and Islamophobia, mm. um, but instead they're um, going for this sort of form of sort of um, state-sponsored kind of, you know, taking away of civil liberties, which could, um, in theory, um, yeah, it's arguably that it's actually doing, it's, well, I think it is doing, it's self-evident that it does more harm than good. <laughs> well, the problem is if you tell people how to dress, then it becomes an issue of resistance as well, you know, especially young people, t- you telling me what to do. Hmm. Well, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. This has happened in the flower people's day, the mm. hippies, those, you know, the, the drug culture and so on. The 60s is a prime example of how people, people will resist. And the more they push, and France has had so many attacks by Muslims. The more they attack the Muslims, the more the, the extremists use it in excuse and they see it as, a, as an opening and an in to go in and, and stage those attacks. And also it, it's a point of recruitment for those fellows. Mm. So it's a bit of a problem. Anyway. Yeah. We've got to get, move on to the next video. So I'll just quickly play <coughs> a station ID and then we'll move on to our next interview. Mm-hmm.
Greenleft Radio. Right. Okay, Rachel, you're so online. We've got our next, Hello. So we've got um, Rachel Evans on the line today. Um, she is currently occupying um, the Sydney College of Arts. Is that um, what you are occupying right now, Rachel? Yeah, we're at Kellen Park, Roselle. Kellen Park. So, oh, well, Park, I haven't actually yeah. been able to give a proper introduction. So you want to tell us, you know, about what's, happening. Know, what's actually <laughs> happening, you know, why you're occupying this building, um, you know, just for listeners who possibly don't uh, don't know what the struggle is about at this point. Yeah, no worries. Look, we're at now day five of occupation. We are occupying the administration building of Sydney College of the Arts, which is located, it's a satellite campus located in Roselle and it's a beautiful area and it's the SEA is in the Kirkbright premises which is this beautiful stone um, old stone buildings which are very beautiful and so we're occupying this because Sydney University are attempting to destroy Sydney College of the Arts and they have been murmuring from the beginning of the year um, that moves had to be made very little detail, a lot of uncertainty, and then they came out with a plan. They wanted to shut down SEA and move all of the course to UNSW, which is another university here in Sydney. And there's no room at the art and design course in UNSW, and there was a lot of protests, rallies, condemnation, um, meetings with the Vice-Chancellor saying no way, um, COFA students, UNSW students saying no way, and then they backed down from that. That was a real victory. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, then on June the 21st, they came out and went, no, well, we're moving you to main campus, Camperdown campus. And so we went, no, you're not. And we rallied. Uh, we rallied a great 500-strong rally last week. And then we occupied this week on Monday saying, nope, we're staying let SEO stay and reinstate the BVA. The BVA is the Bachelor of Visual Arts and they've stopped enrolling students in the BVA. So they're pretty serious and so are we. Yeah, this seems to be kind of like a regular trend um, actually in Australian universities. In fact, we just recently did an interview with someone who talked about um, La Trobe University um, facing such cuts to their courses. And um, maybe before I got, we ask, go into sort of detail about what particular demands of your, um, um, what, why do you think is, what do you think about the sort of, what is the sort of deeper kind of rationalisation between behind these kind of cuts from, you know, why, why do they want to, you know, completely strip the Sydney College of the Arts? Yeah, well, they've, the details are that they're going to try and sack 60% of the staff um, and eliminate the studio-based practice of ceramics, jewellery and glass because these studio-based um, course elements take up too much room and there's not enough room in Campdown campus to have these, um, these studios and... So they're getting rid of um, these things because, quote, unquote, Kirkbright and Kellen Park are too expensive. And this is a load of hogswash. Um, it's not It's not expensive. Uh, actually, figures that we've obtained show that 
um, where the SEA are making $9 million a year and allegedly we've got a deficit of $5.5 million a year. But they're cooking the books. Um, they got $250 million in surplus, this university, and $1.8 million in endowments. Sorry, billion dollars in endowments. They are so rich. And our vice chancellor is on $1.3 million a year. Um, but, you know, they're not prepared to keep the arts co- um, course like they've been attacking language, like they've been attacking humanities, because it's not profitable to corporations who they are buying um, funding for and research funding for. And it doesn't fit into the market education, um, commodification process, which universities, corporate universities are undergoing. So what are kind of like, um, in terms of the occupation, what are the demands, um, like, you know, you're clearly occupying it for a goal. What um, what are the demands that you have um, for for the occupation? There's four main demands from the SEA students, and it's let SEA stay and reinstate the BBA, no staff cuts. Um, and, yeah, and the other one is an independent in- commission into the finances and constitutional issues regard- regarding Kirkbright because the state government has specific legislation around Kirkbright um, and has given a lease free over to University of Sydney in 1996 but there's, you know, there's a lot of pressure from Sydney University to move from Callan Park rapidly. Um, so where the campaign suspects that there's a whole bunch of um, interest to get developers into this beautiful area, and there's a group called Friends of Callan Park who've been fighting off um, developers coming into the area, um, and so. There's all of this stuff which the Independent Commission could uncover and reveal. What sort of response have you had <coughs> excuse me, from the educational unions um, towards your actions? Well, we the first day that we occupied, um, it's we we got we rang a whole bunch of unions and said, Hey, come on down. The National Tertiary Education Union and the CPSU, Commonwealth Public Sector Union are the two unions that cover staff on this university and, and most universities. And so the, the NTU and CPSU had organised, uh, co-hosted a rally on campus condemning the move, proposed move. So they were supportive of the campaign, but it's very difficult for them to come out, um, the staff to come out overtly and say, yep, 100%, yep, occupation, because they're liable, they're, if the federal government wanted to go hard, um, then they could fine staff $10,000 for supporting um, a political um, campaign on campus. So, and these are, this is a result of the horror work choices laws, which, mm. you know, I mean, it's very difficult for union individual union members and unions to come out. So that being said, um, we got support, that, but really two days ago it was fabulous. The Maritime Union of Australia came into the occupation. There's about 30 of them. They're retired comrades and they were unemployed comrades and union organisers and um, and they had a rally outside and then they came, marched in for the occupation and very supportive SEA here to stay, MUA here to stay and, and from then the NTU have come to visit inside as well um, and we've got the 
CFMEU going to go um, on Friday to us emotional support on the exec. And then last night we got Unions New South Wales passing a motion saying we support the occupation and thanking the unions for their support and solidarity for the student occupation. So that was fantastic. And then Unions New South Wales is organising a rally on Sunday as well at 11 o'clock, a barbecue. They're leafleting the local area. So huge amounts of support um, from the union movement, which is fantastic and Mm. just what we need. That's good. And what about the other students? Yeah, there's... um, there's lots and there's lots of students now from SEA who are part of the occupation staying overnight. There's students from COFA, UNSW. There's students as well from NAS, National Art School, because that's the other art school that is under attack from the state government. So this is an independent art school. It's not um, not part of the the university sector, but it is a university course and um, supported financially by the state government, but state government wants to move um, or wants to close it down and into UNSW, and there's fights to retain the beautiful site because, again, it's in this fantastic site in Paddington, very old building, Um, and Divine and the developers want to get their grubby mitts on it. I mean, this is part of the commodification under capitalism as a whole art isn't seen to be profitable for corporations, for society, because art, you know, is self-reflection, it's expression, um, and graphic design is a lot more targeted towards corporations. But visual arts and ceramics and glass, I mean, you know, that 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 really doesn't that really doesn't make corporations profitable. So, you know, these governments are on a neoliberal offensive, and they want to get rid of the things that are beautiful and, and give us hope and inspiration. Okay, um, so I'm running low on time now, but I guess the last kind of question I wanted to ask is um, sort of, you know, how can um, listeners, you know, support um, your occupation? Um, and, of course, does is your um, occupation related to a sort of broader sort of campaign group? Is there like a campaign group? Um, you know, listeners can, you know, like the Facebook or like or to follow what's going on. Yeah, look, um, we have a daily update, a gorgeous little video that happens every day summarising the excitement that that has happened, the moments that have happened in the campaign, so people can check that out. There's a Let SEA Stay Facebook group and there's um, also a student-resistant group as well and so but the let sea stay is is a good one to hook on to and, and check out and we're asking people organizations individuals workplaces students um, friends and families to get together with a let sea stay photo shoot and then send it to the page and, and um and show your solidarity we're also the students are saying well if the university is not enrolling students then we will so uh, we're enrolling people on Open Day at Sydney University. There's another protest, big red cape day of action, um, and saying to students, prospective students, come in, we'll enrol you. Um, and staff, some staff have said, well, yeah, we don't care if they're enrolled or not, we'll teach them. So that's another form of action that's that's going to be taken. But, yeah, for interstaters, please take a photo and show your support. This is a, a massively growing campaign, and, and we're going to win it. Sounds great. Yep, and good luck. Yep, good luck for the occupation. All right. Thank you very no much, Fee, um, yeah, for being with us. Right. See ya. Ciao. Bye.
Alright, um, so we're back on Green Left um, Radio. Um, we just have a bit of short time um, for a short news story before our next interview. Um, so, in um, the latest Green Left Weekly, um, there's a story here printed on um, deliver, um, titled Deliveroo Workers Celebrate um, Win. Um, this comes from um, from a sort of working struggle that happened recently about striking couriers for the online food delivery company um, called Deliveroo in Britain. In Britain, um, who protest um, who were protest against a new contract that would have reduced their pay. Um, so um, so they took action um, to get um, to get their promise um, to get their bosses to promise that they will not be forced to work under a piece rate system and um, so I'm trying to read through this. Yeah, they, I mean, they're being bullied, you know, because they were forced to go into a peace system. So instead of being paid a wage, they're going to be weighed on the num- uh, paid according to the number of deliveries they make, mm-hmm. which is what they used to have. In the, it's a casualization, uh, uh, further deterioration in working conditions and pay for these uh, people who cycle around or, or scoot around um, the city delivering various things for very cheap rates, really compared to what it was before. So now they, are, they were being asked to reduce their wages again and the, the working condition. That's why they fought the struggle. So they went to an unofficial strike. It was only for a week, but um, <coughs> they, um, they now they can choose which areas you can go to and the working conditions have been improved, if anything. Mm-hmm. So that's a great victory for them. And I think this comes on the back of the fact that Corbyn is giving people encouragement and inspiration about fighting back. And in, there's another article about Corbyn as well, but we will talk about that later. Yep. Um, we've got the um, next interview online, so shall we go to that? Yep. Okay. Okay, so on the line we have um, Christina Shennels, um, who is a filmmaker who has made a new five-part documentary series. I think that is available online called Stin Grey Sisters. So, hello, Katrina. Hello there. How are you going? Hi. It's so three parts, but... Oh, three parts. Okay. <laughs> I just say, usually, usually, um, usually, um, usually documentary series come in five parts. So, <laughs> Okay, so it's three parts. So what can you tell us about your new documentary series? Um, so I actually have um, Alice Ether here with me at the moment. Good morning. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. <laughs> um, and she's one of the middle sisters. Um, basically, the documentary is about three sisters, Alice being one of them, who were born into two worlds, um, Man and Greta Arnhem Land and Brisbane in Queensland. Um, and it follows their lives navigating their way through these two worlds, and then it also follows, you know, the challenges that um, arise with that, and it follows their fight to protect their country from fracking. Mm. So yeah, big story. <laughs> so um, so how does it um, so what is it sort of relation to sort of the broader kind of anti-fracking stop CSG kind of campaign? Well, it's a it's a the three parts. Basically, the first one's an introduction to our family and the second one kind of introduces us three girls and our roles in the community and our stories, our personal stories, what we do in the community, um, our struggle, you know, going between Brisbane and Manningrida. And the third one builds up to the uh, story of 
um, Paltar Petroleum putting in their applications in a, across 1,500 k's of Arnhem coastline. And, um, yeah, that was a big, big... <laughs> uh, that was in 2012. So that was um, four years that we did that. And we've just found out on the 11th of August that Paltar withdrew all their applications right across the Arnhem coastline. And... Um, Wow, yeah, come a long way. <laughs> yeah, but a struggle's important yeah. though, isn't it? It's good to yeah. document it. So Aboriginal... Well, the thing is, yeah, just with the fracking, it's Katrina here. Um, it, there's still, Paltas still have applications mm. on shore, so that's really important to um, note that they say once the media kind of got, there was a bit of a tension around Stingray Sisters and, um, you know, the... Protect Arnhemland have been fighting for four years to stop this. Um, and so the company got scared and they r- removed their applications along the coast. So that's offshore applications, but they still have onshore interests. They still have applications onshore. So all of Managrita, all of Alice's, Grace Noni's houses are actually under an application at the moment. So, yeah, I think they did that. Um, to sort of not lose face, but there's still 80, over 80% of the NT still has um, an application or a licence on it for fracking. Yeah, when we met with Palta, and uh, this is documented, we went down to Sydney in our Martin Place and met with them. We had a cup of coffee and there was a little protest at the base of their office. Uh, they were very, you know, we, we met up and we talked about... Um, I talked about and we brought our story in from Manningrida to Sydney and we asked them to remove their applications and they were so hard to budge. They were really, you know, they were just, they said if we move, then another company will come. So, you know, I think a lot of companies are looking at areas across Northern Territory, offshore and onshore, and they're holding on. And, um, yeah, so this is a big win in um, this battle. And I know we've got more to go. Sounds great. And it's good to see um, the community fighting back against such large corporations because you rarely hear about this in the news. Usually the the anti-fracking campaign is run by the non-aboriginal community and it's... Absolutely great news that you've made this three-part series. We're going to have to show it down here. (laughs) The, The... The way that the story spreads is all through awareness, talking, meetings, especially Lock the Gate Alliance have had an amazing... Yes. They've been helping out all the Aboriginal communities right across and everyone, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, uh, they are doing an amazing job at the moment. Mm. Don't frack the territory and, um, you know, and we I don't think we would be here today without them, so... Um, yeah. yeah, but it is they impressive, support. like, they never would have got that win... If Alice and, um, you know, other landowners right away got onto it and just put in all these objections. So, yeah, it did definitely come from the community. Mm. Yeah, we we had the most objections come in from Manningrida. The Northern Land Council were very... Um, <laughs> yeah, they said Manningrida had the loudest voice. So <laughs> I, I was very proud of our family and our people and our community there for really standing up. And um, you walk into the community, you get off the plane and you have that feeling. The children are taught at 
school, you know, we're very open at school about what's going on mm. in our waters and across Arnhem and across Australia. So our children are learning the language and are understanding what's going on, especially about fracking. Um, and our community, you know, this language isn't as foreign as it was back in 2012 and the idea of fracking. So we're slowly spreading uh, awareness right across all ages, uh, about what it is. So that's really important that our people understand what's going on. Sounds like fantastic. Yes, it's great education because kids in, in, in the mainland don't get uh, taught about any of this Aboriginal history or fight back or any political issues. They keep them completely sterile of all these struggles, daily struggles that go on in the community to, to protect the land and, you know, um, fighting against climate change. And I know in Yerkala, um, the school is very powerful and recently won a national award there too, didn't it? Yo, uh, yep. <laughs> you didn't know that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't hear about that. Yeah. I have, I have friends from Yitakala. I didn't hear about that. So yeah, that, it, it was awesome news. Yes, yes, yes. It was. I, I interviewed a guy called um, Peter Botsman who works up there in the education um, uh, area. And um, in his paper, he was mentioning all that sort of stuff. And also the recent uh, negative news you hear about Arnhem is just horrible. It's all about uh, how terrible, you know, the kids are and how they're destroying everything. And um, you never hear any good news. I'll tell you what, you know, I'm I'm a teacher. I'm in my third year of teaching. I was special needs support and assistant teaching three and a half years before I was teaching. And I'll tell you what, the school, our children in our communities are the most bright, amazing, strong, resilient people you will meet. And uh, they give me hope and they give me strength every day. And I, I find it really hard to be away from them. They're the most beautiful people I know. And as I say, you have to be there to understand it. And, you know, the media always highlights the negative things. Mm. Um, and I, you know, that's, that just breaks my heart because I see so much strength in our people and I can see our people going a very long way. And, you know, especially with Protect Arnhem Land and our... Um, anti-fracking story and that just shows how much we can come together and fight and that's it's so important because sometimes media portrays Aboriginal communities as breaking down and uh, you know you feel that when you're there there's so many so many different feelings when you get there when you're living there and you're a part of the family the most beautiful thing that keeps everyone together is country Mm. you know if we keep that strong and we keep everybody strong, and, and it's important to keep that, protect it, fight for it, and that's the only way. If we lose that, we are going to lose our people. Yes, and your document brings it all together, doesn't it? The family, the land, yeah. the pride of the people, um, and protecting the land is, is, is crucial, and lock the gate is part of it, and there's a lot of movements around, and it's actually wonderful to hear that, you know, the Aboriginal and the non-Aboriginal community mm. coming together to protect the land. Um, yeah. And, uh, I think, yeah. Go on. Sorry. Oh, no, just with the documentary, I think, like, that, um, 
that was the point to sort of capture um, the story about, you know, mining and how it, how these communities are being threatened by fracking and also just the, you know, the absolute disrespect to these communities by just, you know, these companies just think they can waltz in and just set up shop, you know, within a month. Like the way that Alice was actually notified by it was just in the back of the NT newspaper. No one actually came out and consulted and they talk about all this stuff all the time. Um, and and the um, documentary was not only... Um, well, I was wanted to document all of that, obviously, because it's very important, but there's so many layers to it. And I think the the reason that we chose to do like three parts was just to be able to capture, um, you know, the many layers that comes with living in a community. Mm. So, you know, the joys, the ups, the downs, you know, the, the lifestyle. And there's a lot of love and a lot of happiness and, uh, you know, friendships. And I've never seen family... You know, the way that family are in Managrita is, I've never seen that anywhere in the world. It's just so special. So part of this documentary was capturing, you know, the many layers that, um, sort of make up Alice and Grace and Noni's life. So when so much untouched beauty up there, especially the kinship, the language, the culture, the ceremony is so strong. There's over 13 different languages spoken in Maningrida, mm. and that's still alive today. And um, why isn't the media talking about that? <laughs> it's too boring for them. They like drama, yeah. <laughs> so negative drama. In my class, there's five-year-olds. I teach transition, and there's five different languages, mm. you know, and I'm mm. just, oh, wow. Sounds amazing. It's amazing. Yes. They teach me so much. Mm. Um, so it, the, the documentaries have been released? Yep. So the documentary has been released about two weeks ago online. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can watch it at stingraysisters.com. Uh, it's just $5 for the three episodes. Um, so, yeah, we, tr- we decided to do it independently. So it's all very grassroots. So please support us. Mm-hmm. Great. I hope people do um, tune in and and see that. And that's that's a a minute amount for amazing series of three Mm -hmm. documentaries. Yeah. Well, um, maybe I'd. Oh, sorry. I just had a small small question. Um, um, in terms of like, how was it? Um, how was sort of like the making the documentary sort of funded? Um, was it sort of crowdfunded or? Yeah. So it's interesting. We kind of, I don't know. I guess. Um. We had all the odds against us, really. Um, Travelling from Melbourne to Maningrida is not easy and very expensive and trying to get crew and gear up there. So we, the whole production was like 40 grand, which is nothing. So it was a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of people volunteered their time on a professional and we crowdfunded that 40 grand. Um, through three crowdfunding um, projects. So that was a huge thing in itself. Um, but what happened with that is, you know, crowdfunding is difficult, but through that we actually built a really strong community. And, um, you know, we over the four years that we were funding the project, 
you know, we um, built a really great community online and, you know, offline as well. So it was really, it actually kind of helped the project having done it that way because, you know, you already tell people about it before you release it. More involved. Yes, everyone feels there, and everyone who's contributed to our possible, you know, feels really invested, not just financially, but they really want to see it happen. So that's been a beautiful process in itself. Okay, thank you very much. It's lovely hearing from you guys, and um, I hope people enjoy it. And do you want to tell us the website, or just to, just uh, Google Stingray Sisters? Do you? Oh, it's just stingraysisters.com. Okay. It's just com. And $5 yep. for a series of three. It sounds wonderful and cheap. Yep, please work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you for being available. Yeah. Bye. Bye. All right. We're back on Green Left um, Radio, and it's um, 8 o'clock, so it's time for the activist calendar um, to find out about how you can get involved in... Um, Okay, so on t- tonight at 6.30pm, um, we have a forum on art and politics, Can Art Stop a War, Save the Planet? And it features, um, it's presented by um, Green Left Weekly, um, and it's going to be, um, have Carol Wells, who's going to be our next interview in yes. half an hour and <laughs> ten minutes. She is um, a director of the Centre for the Study of Political Graphics in California, which actually you'll probably find out more about what they do in the interview, so I won't um, say any more. But that's going to be this Friday tonight, 6.30pm, with dinner from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT. And the brewery workers, the daily protest is going on, and they're getting enormous support from various unions, the MUA and the CFMU as well, to support the workers who've been um, out of a job for now, what, almost 10 weeks, isn't it? Um, so those who are available, uh, do uh, go down there and support them. It's at, um, they have a picket line from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Carlton United Brewery, 77 South Bank Boulevard, South Bank. Right. Oh, and so if you're, if listeners are in Ballarat, there will be a public meeting from Distant Wars to Our Shores featuring, um, our Arnold Zabel, who is a respected advocate for social change, giving a voice to Australia's underclass in his work. Um, so that's going to be happening at 10 p.m., 10 a.m., not at 10 p.m., at the Museum of Australian <laughs> Democracy at Eureka in Ballarat. Okay. Um, Saturday. And on, um, tomorrow there will be a seminar on Latin America Today. Um, in RMIT 115 Queensbury Street in Carlton, organised by LASNET. And also on Saturday, there's actually going to be a lot of events happening on Saturday, so all these events clash, so it's going to be sort of... Choices, choices. Lots of choices. <laughs> um, there'll be a rally, close the camps, bring the refugees here, organised by Refugee Action Collective, tomorrow at 1pm at the State Library. Um, there'll be a public meeting on local democracy as part of Melbourne Writers Festival, um, basically discussing how do local, national policy issues play out locally and focusing on Melbourne's culturally diverse western suburbs. And um, one more event. Oh, that, I'll just tell you how about yeah. um, who that, where that event is. It's good. It features um, Indigenous academic Gary Foley and Federal MP, Labor MP Tim Watts. And it's going to be at the 2.30pm at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, which is at 45 Moreland Street, Footscray, and it's supported by Victoria University and Footscray Community Arts Centre. Okay. Another event? 
another choice you have is a fundraiser is the 10th annual uh, John Cummins Memorial Fund dinner and of course we all know he was the um the old BLF um secretary a very militant well known highly respected uh, leader of the building unions. That'll be at 6.30 p.m. at the Flemington Racecourse, so do turn up. Um, the, the, the money is used to support um, the Fred Hollows Foundation for the eye project that he has had going for a long time. Okay, um, the next um, event on happening on um, next Wednesday, um, the 31st of August, is um, a, um, part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival, a speech, um, a talk by George Monbot. How do we get into this mess? Um, it's going to be at Wednesday, the 31st of August at 7.45pm. Um, he is a Guardian com- columnist um, who um, pro- provides biting insight into the state of today's political, social and natural world. And he's going to be appearing by live stream at 7.45pm Wednesday at Deacon Edge at Federation Square. And um, that is actually a free event, so all you need to do is make bookings, apparently. Um, on Friday, September the 2nd, 1pm, there will be a public meeting, protest and rebellion. Um, it's um, joining um, the artist and journalist Molly Cramble, who came to prominence when she was arrested during the Occupy movement. Um, so she, that will be happening at 1pm at Australian Centre for Movement Image. And at, sorry, go yeah, on. At the Cube, um, Federation Square. Um, next Saturday, there will be um, the Slut Work Walk Melbourne, which is a protest joining the global movement against victim blaming and sh- slut sh- shaming. That's going to be at 1pm at the State Library, um, the city for a march to Federation Square on the 3rd of September. Um, there will be another public meeting um, um, as part of the Melbourne Writers Festival, I think. Um, it's um, Henry Ren- Reynolds, um, a meeting with Henry Reynolds, um, Type unnecessary wars, so it's going to be sort of talking about you know um, Australia's sort of history of entering into unnecessary wars, and it's going to be happening at 4 p.m. Australian Centre for Movement Image, um, Australian Centre for Movement Image Cinema One in Federation Square, and you can make your bookings at the Melbourne Writers Festival event. Yep, Lali. Okay, the um, other two events that I'd like to promote is next Friday at the Broad Meadows Court. Uh, people are gathering at the Town Park to support um, Jasmine Pilbro, who was arrested for standing up in the aeroplane, who we interviewed Brad before about this, just a reminder to encourage people to be there to support her. That's 8.15 in the morning. Shouldn't go for too long, Um, so you might be able to to go there for a little while and then um, go to work or something. Uh, That's one. Um, And the other event that's really important is coming tomorrow. Uh, we talked about this earlier. That is the refugee rally at 1 p.m. at the State Library in the city. So please make sure you turn up because the bigger the crowd, the bigger the message, the stronger the message that we can give politicians. So 1 p.m. State Library um, in support of refugees. Um, and the next event will be, uh, this will be, um, there's a public forum on the Saturday the 13th of September in Glen Waverley. It's by... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this name. Lali might know. That part in Glen Waverley. Uh, Jayatilaka Bandara. And it's um, 
a progressive, creative and popular Sri Lankan artist. Bandara has at times been subjected to physical attacks and hospitalized because he's one of the people who stands up for the Tamils in Sri Lanka. And he's a singer and he performs in different languages. So if you're interested, um, it's at 6 p.m. at the Glen Waverley Community Center, which is at 700 uh, Waverley Road, Glen Waverley. The tickets are $25. Okay. All right. Um, and the last event is there's going to be a campaign launch for Sue Bolton for Moreland. Yes. Um, that, that'll be happening on the 10th of September on a Saturday, 6.30 p.m. And it'll be a, um, a launch of the campaign to re-elect Moreland's socialist councillor, Sue Bolton. Um, it's going to be happening 6.30 p.m. Saturday, 10th of September at the Antonio Cultural Centre. which Anatolian. Is a, Anatolian Cultural Centre, which is 195 Sydney Road, 100 metres south of Re- Renard Street. For more info, phone 96398622. Okay, um, that's enough for the Actors Calendar, so we're going to move on to our next interview just with a quick station ID. Green Left Radio. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, so on the line we have um, Carol Wells, um, who's from the United States. Um, she is the director of the Center for the Study of Pol- Political Graphics, which is um, based in California. So hello, Carol. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, yeah, good morning. I guess probably the first question to ask is um, what exactly is um, for all the Australian listeners, because you're in Australia, um, what is the city of the, for the study of political graphics and, you know, what do you do there sort of as your role as a director? Well, I'm also the founder, and it started out as uh, 28 years ago as a, a resource for grassroots activists to be able to teach, um, educate, and inspire people about different political struggles. So it started out, uh, grew out of the solidarity work uh, to stop Reagan's war against uh, Central Americans, especially Nicaragua and El Salvador, and it's going into an international archive now with more than 85,000 uh, posters from all over the world. So we both, our people come to study, to, to activists and artists and curators come to see what we're doing, academics come to study issues, because posters tell the other side of the story. You mm. can't just rely on mainstream the corporate press to tell and give an accurate view of what's happening at any time in the present or the past. So the posters really talk about the struggles that are happening. And then we do traveling exhibitions about different themes. Our most recent one, uh, and it's online, actually. We have one on, on climate change, which is online on our website, which is politicalgraphics.org. We have one on immigration, which is obviously very timely for what you're doing. We have an exhibit on international, I'm sorry, on immigration, because that's obviously a timely issue throughout the world. That's the kind of thing we do. We do many of those theme-based exhibitions, often very controversial things. So the, the posters that you um, have on display, uh, are they the ones uh, that were printed in America, or do you collect posters that were actually uh, printed and displayed in Nicaragua, for example? Oh, yes. Forty percent of the collection are from um, outside of the United States. Okay. Thousands. You know, okay. we, we have posters from Chile under Allende. We have posters. In fact, we put, you know, after the Sandinistas were voted out of, of office in, uh, the, I think, 89 or 90, the subsequent government basically destroyed the murals and the posters, and they 
had to come actually came back and borrow posters from us so they could tell their own story. Hmm. So it's all of more modern history rather than um, uh, older, like the Russian. You don't have the Russian Revolution stuff, do you? Oh yes, we do. Our, our collection goes back to the 19th century. Okay. Uh, revolution, Chinese Revolution. Um, we have World War One, World War Two. Um, but the bulk of the collection is 1960s to the present. We actually have the largest, even though we're independent and, and, and tiny and we have a you know minuscule budget compared to most libraries, we have um, the largest collection of post-World War II posters in the United States. Yeah. I and guess the reason is that the activists give us their stuff because they've been collecting it and they see what we do with it, and so they, they donate yeah. it to them. Yeah, I guess what I um, wonder, I guess a question um, is, um, you know, sort of the purpose, you know, um, you know, archiving and um, this is it sort of like, you know, to document the, the art or to send, you know, political messages. Is there kind of like a political kind of message of, you know, archiving all this different political art? Well, the story of the, of our struggle, the story of progressive movements doesn't get told often. Mm-hmm. And there's certain, uh, the records of it are few and far between. I'll tell you something I just found a month ago that was I've been looking for years. I've been looking for an artifact about uh, opposition in the United States to the Korean War. Mm. And I've heard from, heard from some old activists, oh, yes, there was, an, uh, there was opposition to the Korean War, but I've never seen anything. And I was collecting um, posters in Chicago in July, and I came across an 8 by 8 by 11 just a piece of paper, almost got thrown out that was mobilizing for opposition to the Korean War. Hmm. And I guess the next kind of question is, um, you know, what what do you sort of think about, you know, because um, you would have a lot of expertise in this sort of like, you know, the role that, you know, art plays in, you know, political and struggles? There's, a never, been, there's never been a viable movement for social change without the art as central to that struggle. Hmm. You mentioned the Russian Revolution. The posters are central to that, along with the organizing. Mm. You know, the Chinese Revolution, the posters, the Central American Revolution, the posters. I mean, it's not just posters, it's the art. You know, theater, poetry, music, um, the, the South African anti-apartheid music, yes. the music, and, mm. and the Vietnam War. I mean, the posters and the music and the theater and the poetry. So the arts have been central to every, every movement for social change. The, the civil rights movement in the United States didn't lose many. They had some posters, not a lot. But the music, can you, we imagine, we cannot imagine the civil rights movement without the songs, We Shall Overcome, mm. We Shall Not Move. Mm. They were what really brought people together and inspired them. Mm. And other posters or other art forms conveyed what the struggle. People who hadn't necessarily experienced the kinds of, in South Africa, for example, could learn from it from the, from the books and the literature and the poetry. So art is absolutely central, and it's it's the most powerful weapon we have. I mean, a gun can change your behavior, but it can't change your heart or your mind, and that's what the arts can do. And and I also, um, from my limited experience in observation, I find that um, at the time where there's a lot of... um, Activity, tumultuous activity, whether it's revolution or whether it's protest, art seems to flourish uh, profusely because people want to express themselves and art seems to be, in one form or the other, the best way they can express those feelings, the frustrations um, at that point of time. And certainly describes the state of mind of people during that period, doesn't it? Absolutely. You 
hit it on the head. Mm. And um, of, of recent times, have you found any <clears throat> uh, such uh, expressions in the USA, for example, with, with, with the political situation as it is in the U.S. now? Well, there's, I mean, there's a proliferation of posters uh, you know, inspired by and, and coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, there's so many of these, of these you know, young people of color who've been murdered by, by the police are coming out in posters to remind people, to keep it in front of people's attention. Hmm. I have a question. Yeah, I have an interesting question, actually. Um, particularly, I'd like to ask um, you sort of what you think um, of... Um, I know um, we have the internet now, and one of the sort of big sort of things is in political kind of expression is um, internet memes, and I kind of sort of want to hear <laughs> kind of your perspective on that and is that you know what how and how is it shifting kind of the dynamics of sort of art and politics well the internet is actually i think uh, a great deal in part responsible for a revival of the of the paper poster of the old school paper poster because one of the problems that we always had when the artists could design it they could get it produced either by offset or silk screen or or, you know, woodcut. I mean, there's certainly many, many means of varying levels of, of expense that you can reproduce them. The biggest problem people always had was dissemination. And that was the, one of the reasons we have so many posters, old posters, and sometimes they just never got distributed. Hmm. And what the Internet allows is an image to literally go around the world. And what, what many artists are doing, they're creating downloadable, high-resolution images. So, like Occupy, the Occupy movement in the United States um, had an entire website with with uh, with images that people could download. They were high res. Uh, the the immigration rights movement, because I think this website was also Arizona, had a lot of immigrant rights. And it actually still does. I mean, because it's obviously an ongoing struggle in the United States as well. And people can download them and print them. And what it says on these websites. Is these these posters are free to you to use as long as you are using them for non-commercial purposes and using them for the purpose of the the, the point of the poster. So someone can't alter it, um, someone can't use it to, to, for sale. And they say, you know, if you do, if you oppose this, if you use it on the means, we will go after you. But other than that, it's free to use. So it's an amazing way for people to download exactly what they want for free. Actually, what what you kind of say there, I, I'm, I'm hopefully you're familiar with this um, Marxist thinker, Walter Benjamin, but I did a course on Walter Benjamin, and he kind of talked a lot about, you know, how, um, you know, art, you know, how art is sort of like, you know, the sort of advent of the sort of camera, um, you know, made sort of art more sort of accessible to like, you know, the working class because previously, you know, art was um, really sort of the domain of sort of the rich. Do you think this sort of advent of, you know, these technologies actually makes, you know, access to art more equal, like, you know, allows more working class people to access and re reproduce art? Yes, I mean, I mean, the, the, the political poster is, is probably the most democratic art form, uh, visual art form. Because it is inexpensive, it's often free, and, and and people can understand it. I mean, a good poster has to be understood. Hmm. It can't be understood, then it's really not functioning as a as a protest poster. So it's it's, it's, a, it's a very democratic outcome. And I guess um, the sort of next question I sort of want to ask is. I'm a bit of an art, a sort of academic <laughs> nerd. So this is another sort of academic-y kind of question. But I kind of want to sort of hear you sort of comment because I've 
I've sort of noticed sort of this trend of this sort of dominance of sort of postmodern thought, and I kind of of like you know basically sort of um, you know basically puts this sort of primacy of sort of subjectivity sort of away from you know um, during the sort of nineteen um, during the sort of Russian Revolution there was this sort of emphasis you know that art could have a like you know a political kind of uh, emancipatory kind of purpose that can be liberating, whereas you know postmodernism seems to appear to basically promote this idea that everything's sort of subjective and puts no sort of central kind of objective sort of platform for emancipation. I kind of wanted to hear your what your comments on that were. Well, I, I'll just give you some experience I've had in the classroom because I speak at a lot of, of universities, is that I think what you're describing, the postmodern perspective that you're describing, has really resulted in a lot of paralysis. And people just don't take a position, or they feel, or, or um, cynicism. Cynicism is a killer. Cynicism is, is, is probably one of the biggest causes of, of paralysis. That mm. is, the sense of doesn't make any difference anyway. And of course, I've spent <laughs> I've spent my entire adult life since, since I was in you know ninth grade, um, uh, you know, fighting for justice. Uh, you know, working on the <laughs> civil rights movement and protesting the Vietnam War. So that that kind of um, attitude, I just obviously. And the posters, poster makers, the people ask me all the time, how can you work on all these things that are showing dead children and torture? And, and I said, because poster makers are fundamentally optimistic. They believe people can change. Hmm. They believe that things can change. And they wouldn't be making these posters unless they did believe that things could be different. And so hmm. there's a fundamental optimism of people who are doing activism. And, and I think that's really, for us to survive as a planet, um, you know, because climate change is probably the, you know, it's clearly a life and death issue. For us to survive as a planet, people can't sit, sit around and do nothing. Hmm. It's very encouraging to, to listen to you. We just interviewed a young woman who is occupying an arts um, faculty room in, in Sydney University um, where art is being uh, de-emphasized and that similar things have happened in, in the Literal University here in, in Victoria or in Melbourne rather. So it's inspiring to listen to you the way you present it and I look forward to listening to you this t- tonight at um, in, in the city where there's a, a little gathering organized for you to present your views. Yes, at 6.30 at the... Um you probably have the at the resistance center. Yeah, the That's resistance right. center. <laughs> yeah. At 6:30. Thank you very much uh, for being available this morning, and uh, look forward to hearing you in person later on today. Yep. Look forward to speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Greenleaf for Weekly Radio, and we are almost at the end of the show. Um, just thought we'll give you some trivia, but interesting one because Olympics is now. Over. Finished. Thank and goodness. I didn't watch actually a single minute of it. <laughs> Neither did I. I did watch the news, um, um, some of the positive stories. That Lali is actually going to probably mention now. <laughs> no, no, no. What I wanted to do was just let people know how um, in, it, it, little countries around the world have actually performed quite well. And in particular, I'm referring to Cuba. The, you know, since the Cuban Revolution in 1959, as we know, the U.S. has you know, imposed an embargo on, on um, Cuba. And uh, in 1960, just before the U.S. blockade, uh, Cuba had won 12 medals in contrast 
um, to now. In this year, the small island nation has 197 medals, which is amazing. And I think that's a reflection of the commitment of the Cuban people and the success of the revolution. And that's, um, you know, compared to, to the Western nations where they pour millions of dollars into training the athletes who go there and compete against uh, athletes from um, or, or performers really in this in this uh, sports event um, by third world uh, representatives who have very little money, very small budget to train their athletes and it seems to be celebrated as a wonderful victory when they come back and they've beaten some poor culture from um, you know Thailand or, or Indonesia or something like that and it's just a shameful thing but it's encouraging to see that the revolution in Cuba has produced such amazing uh, performance at this particular event. So I thought I'll just say that just to... Well, <laughs> I guess um, one of the... It's, it's interesting because um, one, one of the sort of reasons in, um, it, it's cited that um, is because, you know, the, uh, because Fed, Fidel Castro put all this sort of funding in yes, the sort of did. sports. Yep. Um, and it kind of, you know, shows, you know, because, you know, Going back to actually um, that discussion about arts, you know, arts are you know constantly yes. kind of defunded um, when you have when you're sort of in a society that you know prioritise you know human emancipation, you know, you know self development, you know, of arts, you know, participating in sport, all the things that, you know people enjoy, as mm. opposed to you know, mm. um, but we live in kind of like a world today where you know in Australia where the emphasis is always put on sort of things like you know money is put towards you know the things that can are uh, of economic value to to corporations like you know right. finances engineering of course there's lots of um productive value i get um sort of self development value in engineering there's a lot of people who would enjoy you know designing you know buildings and yeah but clearly their creative kind of pursuits are actually emphasized on this sort of economic model that prioritizes mm. so profit one of the things i find really intriguing is people forget you know, uh, Brian Cox appeared in the um, Q&A program a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I've always been of the view that if there is no art, there's no science. Because to, to become uh, uh, <coughs> academic, you have to come up with a theory to perform your, your PhD and so on. If you're not creative, you cannot have a theory. So the, the the things of the mind are totally misrepresented by the system you just described, Jacob. And it's awful to think that, you know, art is being clamped down, creativity is being clamped down or discouraged. And it's it, it's made like a less important course when yeah. really it should be one of the most important courses to, to develop creativity, to encourage people to, to relve in it and, um, you know, and, to build that arena would also go towards um, helping people with their mental health issues. You know, you, if, you, if you go to a, uh, any institution where or any, any of the um, treatment that's given to mental health um, clients, um, from my point of view as a nurse, is that, you know, art is part of the therapy, part of the revelation of what they're thinking and how people express themselves. Expressing oneself is art, and that is being destroyed by the system, the capitalist system, that's totally, totally focused on only uh, money and uh, profit. So that's my binge for the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess... Um yeah, well, I'll, I'll just make like, one last comment because I don't have, we don't actually have any time for another new story. Um, I remember a kind of like actually a notable scientist that said um, this sort of misguided sort of economic um, in terms of like how science is funded, like if you just focus, because um, there's always um, 
this focus on just funding one particular field of science over others because one gives out the most profit. Yeah. But actually, you know, you actually have to fund everything to get the best results because all the fields of science and, of course, including arts are yeah. all interrelated with each other. You know, if you go to a hospital, you'll find one that's a pro- you'll have a machine that's made by an engineer, uh, some uh, a sort of medicine that was m- probably made by a biologist, and then also um, previous lab research might have depended on some. Um, finding in physics and chemistry. So, That's right. Yeah. It's all, it all boils down to creativity and how your mind functions and, and imagines, you know. So all those things are there. Yeah. All right. So I guess um, we've got to wrap it up. Um, that's, thank you for um, listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Um, that was an, another program of Green Left Radio, Bites the Dust, and <laughs> stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions.